I'm EJ Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. And uh, before we begin today, I want to acknowledge a production by Cheney High School. And uh, there was a scheduling mix-up. It was entirely my fault. And as a result, they weren't able to come in this week ahead of their staging of These Shining Lives. And this is a play about the women who painted luminescent dials on watch faces, and the paint that made them luminescent was also radioactive. And uh, this particular play was noteworthy for a number of reasons. It's their drama program's first production since COVID. They're actually in a new auditorium for this production, and it was the director Michael Scott's first show as a director. So I just wanted to bring that to our listeners' attention, and if you'd like to go, These Shining Lives opens tomorrow, that's February 1st, at Cheney High School, and it runs there until February 10th. And you can get tickets and uh, their show times and more information at CHS. CheneySD.org. And now we're going to turn to our guests who are in the studio this morning, and they are here on behalf of the Spokane Civic Theater and their new main stage production of Amadeus, which dramatizes and uh, takes a few creative liberties about the rivalry between the composers Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. So let me welcome the director, Melody Detheridge. Thank you. Good morning, Melody. Uh, there is Mitch Hyde, who is playing Mozart. Hello. Hello, Mitch. And there is Dan Bisbee, who is playing Salieri. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, so Amadeus is a play by Peter Schaefer. It came out in uh, 1979. And I think people may be more familiar with the movie that, um, so the play predates the movie. The movie was based on this. And the movie came out about five years after the play debuted. So folks might remember that very vibrant, very colorful, and, and um, very sensational film. How does the play maybe differ from that, and what are we dealing with here, Melody? Well, the play really, it's Salieri's story. It's about a man who is living and experiencing and demonstrating the seven deadly sins. And and we see others in the play also display those, but it's about his personal journey, an existential crisis, if you will, uh, his relationship to his God, and how that is manifested in his relationship to Mozart. Yeah, so it follows the same trajectory mm-hmm. as the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the play, it actually went through several revisions. And uh, so I'm not sure if you're staging maybe an earlier version or if this incorporates all the revisions that Peter Schaefer made. Well, the script we're using is the most current recent version that Peter Schaefer uh, edited and has published. And you asked about some of the differences. The, real, the focus we're taking is and we're placing a focus really on the language and the relationships that Salieri has with everyone. And the themes are timeless. So we're presenting it. It could happen anywhere today in you know history. It's told in flashback. It's a memory play. But it could happen to anyone at any time. And we see it, the themes played out today currently in business, politics, entertainment. And I'm always interested as to the, the director's choice to engage in a particular production. So why did you come to this particular one? It's the beauty of the the language, the story. It's really operatic. It's deceptively big because it seems like an intimate story between these two men's personal relationship and Salieri's internal struggle. But it's about their their lives at the time. I mean, they were both operatic composers and the scale of the piece it takes place in so many different locations. So it was that scope, that drama, that melodrama sometimes, if you will, that appealed to me. It's very theatrical. 
Yeah, and I'd like to talk about that in a, a bit later because we do envision this as you know largely the rivalry between these two men, and maybe Constance factors in a little bit in our conception. But uh, there are a number of actors participating in this. It's got a fairly large ensemble, so I'd like to talk about that in a little more detail in a bit. But Dan, as Salieri, you have a monologue that kind of sets up the scene for a lot of what's taking place, and it, it kind of grounds us in a certain location and, and telegraphs what's about to happen. So I was wondering if you could open with that monologue, and then maybe we can talk about your character. Certainly, sure. Thing. The place throughout Vienna. The year, to begin with, 1781. The age, still that of the Enlightenment, those clear years before the guillotine fell in France and cut all our lives in half. I'm 31, already a prolific composer to the Austrian court. I own a respectable house and a respectable wife, Teresa. I do not mark her, I assure you. I required only one quality in a domestic companion, lack of fire. And in that omission, Teresa was conspicuous. I also had a prized pupil, Caterina Cavalieri. She was to become the greatest singer of her age. At that time, still just a bubbling student with merry eyes and a sweet, eatable mouth. I was in love with Caterina. <laughs> or at least in lust, but because of my vow to my wife and my God, I never laid a finger upon her, except, of course, to depress her diaphragm in the manner of teaching her how to sing. My ambition burned with unquenchable flame. Its chief goal was the post of first royal Kapellmeister, then held by Giuseppe Bono, 70 years old and apparently immortal. When you come, you will hear that we musicians of the 18th century were nothing more than servants, the willing slaves of the well-born and the well-to-do. This is completely true. It is also completely false. Yes, we were servants, but we used our learning to celebrate men's average lives. We took unremarkable men, usual officials, uh, run-of-the-mill bishops, ordinary generals, statesmen, wives, and sacramentalized their mediocrity. We soothed their noons with strings de visi. We pierced their nights with kitarini. We gave them processions for their strutting, serenades for their rutting, high horns for their hunting, and drums for their wars, trumpets, sounded when they entered the world and trombones groaned when they left it. The savor of their age remains because of us. Our music is remembered while their politics is long forgotten. <laughs> Tell me, before you call us servants, who served whom? And, I wonder, who in your generations will immortalize you? And scene. And in this monologue, I think we already hear Salieri's combativeness and some of his defensiveness that is certainly integral to his character. So for the uninitiated, let's sure. talk about Salieri and his uh, his journey throughout this play. That's right, yes. Yeah. So I see this piece and I guess as as a as a human being who's just discovered that he's slipping into middle age, I realize there's a certain mental mathematics that now my life has has taken on and one is uh, comparing uh, the ambitions of one's youth to the reality of the disappointments of one's re <laughs> one's, one's current circumstances. And I think um, that is what I'm trying to bring to the character of Salieri is either you deal with that in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And I, and I think the tipping point is meeting someone so amazing like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And what does that do to a relatively ordinary person who has such high ambitions for himself and realizes 
well, life isn't going to quite turn out like you expected. And it's good to hear that you're approaching the character of Salieri from a point of sympathy or a sympathetic standpoint, because I think it, it could be very tempting to demonize him and caricaturize him and make him sound like someone who is simply frustrated and sort of one note. But there's a there's a depth there, no? I think so. I mean, I think the, the character as written and rewritten a number of times by Peter Schaefer, I, there's a redemption arc, right? I, or at least that's how I envision it, whether the audience sees it that same, the same way, I, I don't know, but I, I see it as a redemptive arc in, in some way. And so let us introduce Mozart, Mitch Hyde, and he becomes in this play your chief rival, and he is the, he is the symbol that is held up to you in, in some ways or presented to you and that really illuminates all these frustrations that you have with you know, that, that reckoning that's taking place. So Mitch, introduce us to the Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart of this play. Wolfgang, he is very much a child uh, in, in a lot of ways while also being distinctly, he, he has depth, but he, he's very playful. Um, he, he loves making jokes and it's very difficult for him to take things seriously except for, uh, when he does. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's, um, his brain moves faster than his mouth or I should say the other way around, I suppose. Um, he's constantly creating whether he wants to or not. Um, it's, it's a, a fun character to embody. And was this something that you researched beforehand? I mean, we all have some passing familiarity with Mozart uh, and his work, but Mozart the man might be less familiar to some of us. Um, was this something you researched at all through books or uh, through watching, for example, Amadeus, where, you know, I think it was Tom Hulse, his mm -hmm. character, I mean, he had this giggly tick mm -hmm. that, uh, that became a defining trait of his character. Uh, the, the giggle is definitely... Peter Schaefer made it very clear that that is something he wants to be part of the character. You know, he, he mentions it in very descriptive terms throughout the script. I, you know, I had seen the movie not uh, recently before I auditioned, um, and I have done research, but uh, it was not a huge focus because I wanted to create the character fresh um, as much as possible uh, while honoring the actual person and the history. So, uh, yeah, it did inform some things, but in general, I, I tried to start from ground zero. Yeah, and Dan, I, I would pose the same question to you because this isn't a bioplay. We're not striving for necessarily factual accuracy, as I mentioned in the intro. That it does take, you know, certain creative liberties between their uh, between these two men. So, did you go back to that source material? Certainly, absolutely. Like I, I believe in theater, we're often doing uh, world building in a sense, and again, it's sort of impressionistic painting, right? We're trying to pick moments where we add, ah, this is something real from this era that I can bring to this character. Um, but it's certainly not, um, you know, we're not trying to do a history documentary <laughs> channel yet. So, but uh, yeah, I definitely did look back. And I, I watched a couple of YouTube videos about how to bow appropriately and, and uh, try to add that. It's, it's just a little note and a, a little piece that you can throw out there for the audience to say, ah, I'm, I'm transported to somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a scene that really sets up your rivalry between the two men, and I think this is the this is where they first come into contact. Um, and Melody, I didn't know if you wanted to maybe give us some detail about this scene. And before we move into it, I really like your perspective as a director and what you're trying to evoke from these actors when you envision this rivalry. Um, <laughs> thank you. The, I just have to say these two are remarkable actors. It's been 
uh, it's made my job so easy and just pleasurable because they're so skilled and talented and carry the show. And so it's been just an absolute sincere pleasure to work with both of them. As far as... Um, the scene. The scene. Yeah. <laughs> the scene itself. <clears throat> this scene is very well known from the film. Mozart is presented at court. So this is the first time he meets the emperor of the court and Salieri and the other um, people of the court. So Salieri has composed a march of welcome for Mozart's entrance. And Salieri plays it. Then Mozart decides, oh, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. So he plays it from memory. And then he does a little riff on the march. And what that does is Salieri recognizes, oh, my word, the musical genius that's present here. It blows his mind, basically. So uh, I will provide some of the stage direction as they play the scene. Excellent. Let's hear that scene now. Bene. Bene. I, too, wish you success with your opera. I'll have it. It's going to be superb. I must tell you I've already found the most excellent singer for the leading part. Oh? Who is that? Her name is Cavalieri. Caterina Cavalieri. She's really German, but she thinks it'll advance her career if she sports an Italian name. She's quite right. It was my idea. She is, in fact, my prize pupil. Actually, she's a very innocent child. Silly in the way of young singers. You know, she's only 20. Yes, I had kept my hands off of Caterina, oh yes, but I could not bear to think of anyone else's honor, least of all his. You're a good fellow, Salieri, and that's a jolly little thing you wrote for me. It was my pleasure. Let's see if I can remember it. May I? Uh, no need. It's yours. Grazie, signore. Mozart sits down at the piano and throws the manuscript where he can't see it and plays Salieri's March of Welcome as written perfectly from memory. At first slowly recalling it, but then on the reprise, uh, he plays it very much faster. The rest is just the same, isn't it? So he finishes the march with insolent speed. You have a remarkable memory. <laughs> Grazie ancora, signore. Mozart plays the opening again, but this time he stops on the interval of the fourth, pounds it again with a displeasure. It doesn't really work, that fourth, does it? Let's try the third above. He does so and is very pleased with himself. <laughs> yes, good. So he reprises the new interval, then le uh, leading up to it smartly with his uh, well-known military trumpet arpeggio, which characterizes the celebrated march that we hear from the marriage of Figaro. There's a, With a flourish, he improvises and riffs some more and finishes with a flourish. Scusate, I must go. Really? Why don't you try a variation? Thank you. I must attend on the Emperor. Ah. It has been delightful to meet you. For me, too. And thanks for the march. Mozart picks up the music and heads out. Was it then, so early, that I began to have thoughts of murder? Of course not. Not in life. <laughs> but in art, it was a different matter. I decided... I would compose a huge, tragic opera to astonish the world. I would set my legend of Danaeus, uh, who, for a monstrous crime, was chained to a rock. Uh, for eternity, bolts of lightning forever striking his head. Wickedly, I imagined Mozart in that same situation. But in reality, the man was in no danger for me at all. Not yet. And scene. And we hear there the young Mozart coming in and his flourishes of genius. 
and how that begins to upstage and frustrate Salieri considerably. Now, we see this dynamic evolving between these two men. And Mitch, I was wondering, is your Mozart somewhat blind to his genius, Mm -hmm. or is he aware of it and kind of needling Salieri a little bit? Yes. (laughs) Uh, I, I think he's very much aware of his genius. He's not as much aware of his effect on others uh, and how they might perceive his genius. You know, in that scene, I think like many things, Mozart views it as a game. You know, like, I'm going to see if I can try to remember it. Now now you do something cool with it. And, you know, and so I don't know that uh, he certainly at this point doesn't know his effect on Salieri. And throughout the show, he, he does recognize his genius and does get frustrated if it's not recognized. I see. I see. And we see how that rankles uh, Salieri. And with that, Dan, we see that rankling. And we also see um, your character doing these asides to the audience. And I wondered if that maybe helped us or helped your character ingratiate himself a little bit more with the audience and make himself a little more sympathetic to the audience. I think so. And I think it comes in the tradition of the great, you know, like Shakespearean sort of, you know, Iago talking directly to the audience. Hey, this is my plan. Let's see how it plays out, which is a great dramatic device. But also one of the big themes of this play is, you know, is God listening? Does he care about what we're doing? So in speaking to the audience, maybe it's it's I need to get what's in my head out there. Does anyone hear it? Right. I think that's 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 a theme I've, I've been playing with. And I think the character really. Mm-hmm. represents that. Absolutely. You know, God, you know, <clears throat> why is the world like this? Why are some people just so brilliant and I'm working so hard? Why don't I have the same success? And there is kind of this existential or spiritual crisis element to the whole thing because a lot of this is Salieri raging at God for his lot in life, no? Indeed, indeed, absolutely, yeah. That, that quite a, you know, trying to make sense of the universe. Does it or is it just... The clockmaker has set it all in motion, right? The, the, that big enlightenment idea, right? You know, what, what is the role of God in our lives? Is it an active role or a passive role or nothing at all, right? Yeah. And uh, Melody, earlier in the, the interview, we had talked about some of these other folks who are involved. And while it's easy to fixate on the rivalry between Mozart and Salieri, there was a, a larger cast to this. I was looking at some of these names. You've got Alex Barclay, who is actually a singer himself. Mm-hmm. So you've mm-hmm. got Alex Barclay, and then you've got some very familiar names to the civic stage. You've got Jameson Elton. Um, you've got Bridget Pretz. And yeah, so what roles are these folks playing, and, and how do they perform in this kind of ensemble role for these men? So Peter Schaefer, the playwright, has constructed it with an ensemble, a Greek chorus, if you will. And uh, there are two characters who are referred to as the Venticelli, who are uh, Salieri's henchmen, (laughs) I guess to use a word. And so the ensemble, they take on different characters. They perform different tasks. They're very integral to moving the action along. They change the settings for us from place to place. And many of the ensemble are non-speaking roles. And I have these fabulous actors in the ensemble playing these various roles, but bringing their skill and talent and ability of active listening, of creating these characters in a just a little moment. And it just elevates the whole, entire experience. I couldn't be more grateful. And almost, I think every one of our cast members have some kind of musical background, either classical education or training or professional experience. So it's um, been just a 
wonderful experience living this with them. And, and um, I'm humbled by their choice to participate. And on that subject of musical experience, we also heard in your stage direction for that scene, music enters into this mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I'm assuming that this is kind of ambient music that maybe is is played over the over the PA or through speakers. But for a play that is so much about this rivalry between two composers, two musical composers, one would expect it to be a musical, and it's not. It's a straight play that has music. How much does music factor into this? The music is another character. I mean, we hear so many snippets of Mozart's pieces. Salieri hears the music in his head as he's reading Mozart's manuscripts. We hear some of it actually performed live as if we're watching the opera sequences or Mozart is playing at the piano. So there's this mix of music in our head and music uh, being performed for us. We never hear a full completed piece performed, but it's all these musical references that move the story along and display really how trailblazing Mozart was for his time and age. And I would imagine, because now it becomes part of the sound design, Mm -hmm. and I would imagine that this becomes a challenge for the sound designer because you're now working this recorded music into the scene and keeping that flow and keeping that momentum. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We're working out some of those little uh, hiccups this week, (laughs) as a matter of fact. But I have, like I said, I have such wonderful talented actors that are just going with it and incorporating that and feeling that ebb and flow of when the rise and fall happens. So I'm just so proud of everything about it. Right. And also on the subject of music, uh, Mitch, you have a monologue or your character of Mozart has a monologue about music where he kind of waxes philosophical about this. And so I was wondering if you could perform that now. Yes. Um, There's a little language in it. If you'd like me to censor that, I can. I, I just would. I, <laughs> yes, and the FCC would really like yes, you to censor yes, that yeah. language. So um, please yes, gloss uh, over Mozart it. Mozart is fairly vulgar, uh, not you know excessively so, but he's a, he's he likes uh, like some poop jokes. Um, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> I don't understand you. You're all up on perches, but it doesn't hide your butt. <laughs> you don't care about gods and heroes. If you are honest, each one of you. Which of you isn't more at home with his hairdresser than Hercules? Or Horatius? Or your stupid Danaeus come to that? Or mine? Mine too? Mithridates, king of Pontus? Il Sonio de Scipione? All those anguished antiques. They're all bores. Bores, bores, bores. All serious operas written this century are boring. Well, 999 out of a thousand. <laughs> Look at us. Four gaping mouths. What a perfect quartet. I'd love to write it. Just this second of time. This now, as you are. Herr Chamberlain thinking, impertinent Mozart. I must speak with the emperor at once. Herr Prefect thinking, ignorant Mozart. Debasing opera with his vulgarity. Herr Court Composer thinking, German Mozart. What can he finally know about music? And Mozart himself in the middle thinking, I'm just a good fellow. Why do they all disapprove of me? That's why opera is important, Baron, because it's realer than any play. A dramatic poet would have to put all those thoughts down one after another to represent this second of time. The composer can put them all down at once and still make us hear each one of them. (laughs) Astonishing device, a vocal quartet. 
I tell you, I want to write a finale lasting half an hour. A quartet, becoming a quintet, becoming a sextet, becoming a septet, an octet, a nonet, on and on, wider and wider, all the sounds multiplying and rising together, and the together making a sound entirely new. I bet you that's how God hears the world. Millions of sounds ascending at once and mixing in his ear to become an unending music, unimaginable to us. That's our job. That's our job, we composers, to combine the inner minds of him and him and him and her and her, the thoughts of chambermaids and court composers, and turn the audience into God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I talk nonsense all day. It's incurable. Ask Stanzerl. And scene. Melody, Mitch, Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking about Amadeus and performing these scenes as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking this morning with Melody Dethridge, Mitch Hyde, and Dan Bisbee of the Spokane Civic Theater's new production of Amadeus. Amadeus opens on the Civic's main stage this Friday, that's February 2nd, and runs there until February 25th. For tickets or more information, you can call their box office on 509-325-2507, or you can go online to SpokaneCivicTheater.com or CivicTickets.com.